Hey guys, it's Jamie Scrimger here, second wife, stepmom of three, and mom of one. And you're listening to my podcast, where we talk about all things motherhood, stepmotherhood, and living a kick-ass life. If you're ready for raw and real conversations and are striving to live your very best life, then you are in the right place. Every week, I'll provide you with tips and strategies and mindset shifts to inspire you to live your own version of a kick-ass life. We'll bring you along as I create my own. So have you ever wished that you could pick a lawyer's brain without getting charged those huge ass legal fees? You know, ask them the questions about child support or spousal support or what to do if the ex isn't following the order or even, you know, when the kids are able to start making some decisions for themselves. Well, if so, today is your lucky day, because in this episode, I am chatting with a lawyer and divorce coach, Leanne Townsend. So Leanne is not only a practicing family lawyer, she is also a divorce coach who provides pre-divorce, divorce management, and divorce recovery support. Leanne is a wealth of knowledge in this area, and I know that you're going to find this episode oh so valuable. So without further ado, let's dive in and pick Leanne's brain. All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. So I am so excited for today's episode. I am here with Leanne Townsend, and she is a lawyer and a divorce coach. So when I was on Instagram the other day and I told you that Leanne was coming on, I asked for some questions. And guys, did you ever send me in questions for Leanne? So are you prepared? Uh, hopefully. Yeah, there's <laughs> lots. i excited. Of- yeah, lots and lots of questions. Um, and I probably it probably doesn't surprise you. Most of the questions are around child support and all of that kind of fun stuff. So, you know, before we dive into the questions that were submitted on Instagram, can you just kind of give us a little bit of a rundown on what you offer? Because you're just not a regular lawyer. Uh, no, I'm a little bit different. I always like to say, don't put me in a box. I definitely uh, am outside the box. Um, and just in terms of, I consider myself an entrepreneur. So I I have a legal practice. I am a family law lawyer and I do um, you know take on family law clients and assist people with issues uh, surrounding divorce, support, um, you know, all of the family law issues. Uh, I'm also though a divorce coach and that's really my passion because I find it's a more positive um, sort of role than the lawyering role. So I help people both before divorce, like preparing what they need to know, um, preparing them emotionally as well as legally. I help them through divorce. And then my favorite part, divorce recovery, where I help people move forward, you know, and and be empowered and confident and live their life beyond divorce, beginning, you know, the next phase and hopefully making it the best part of their lives. I just love that. So what inspired you to start doing all that you do? Uh, well, I felt that there was a need for it. I mean, I've, I've been a lawyer for years. I, most of my career, or the like, sort of the first half of, or just over half of my career, I was a crown attorney. So I worked uh, prosecuting, uh, you know, people charged with criminal offenses, and my specialty was domestic violence. So I had a lot of exposure to, you know, some of the family law issues um, in that position, uh, dealing with abuse and, and whatnot in relationships. And then when I left the crown's office and I began practicing family law, and I went 
going through my own divorce, I realized, you know, that there really was a need for more supports for people because research shows that next to death of a spouse, divorce is life's second most stressful event. And so people are going through, you know, all this stress and turmoil and they're having to make major, major life altering decisions about, you know, where they're going to live, financial decisions that will affect their, you know, financial security and their future decisions about their children, where they're going to live, how much they're going to see them, all these important things. And yet they're in, you know, turmoil and stressed out and they need more support. So that's when I um, came up with the concept of, you know, developing these coaching programs to provide um, more support for people who are going through the process. I love it. I think, you know, I think that's so important because, you know, I, I often say when it comes to divorce or, you know, being a stepmom or anything in this kind of blended family space, it's really easy to say how you would act or how you would react. But when you find yourself in the trenches, there's a lot of emotional stuff that, you know, can impact your ability to make those decisions in the best way possible with a level head. Because I don't know about you, sometimes when I'm emotional, my decision-making ability isn't as good. So it's nice to have someone to kind of not only support you through the legalities of it, but also through the emotional piece, because I think that's most of the battle. Well, and that's the biggest issue, I think, within family law that makes it different than a lot of the other areas of law is that your clients are often very emotional and they're not thinking rationally and they're making decisions based on emotion, sometimes emotions of hatred or revenge, you know, rejection, you know, we, they're wounded. And, you know, those decisions often are not the best decisions for somebody in the long term. And unfortunately, you know, what can happen happen in the legal process is thinking with your emotions often will lead you to have a very expensive legal bill. And people don't, you know, they blame the lawyer, um, but it's they're the, the lawyer is getting instructions from them and they, you know, they want revenge. They're angry. They want to win. It's this winning attitude that I think, unfortunately, at times is what's hurting families in, fam in the family law realm is, you know, the desire of each spouse to win against the other spouse rather than to just let's kind of, let's find a, put our emotions aside and find a solution that's best for our children and best for us that isn't going to end up costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees because we're trying to win and no one really wins in that situation anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you think about all of the money that is spent. You know, I will say even for us, and we haven't spent a whole lot on lawyers' fees, but we've still spent a whole lot on lawyers' fees because <laughs> even when you don't, you know, go into those high conflict situations, it adds up. And, you know, that's a year or two or three of your kid's education or, you know, an yeah. investment into your retirement or, you know, your ability to move forward. So sometimes I think people get wrapped up in, like you said, the winning and they forget like where this money could actually go and the benefit that it could have to everyone's lives. It's just it gets into this vicious cycle. Oh, exactly. It, you know, it really does. And, you know, I feel sometimes it's, it can, it's the lawyer's responsibility as well to try and put a perspective on it for the client that, you know, yes, you can fight for this. You may or may not win. This is what it's going to cost you. You know, do you really, is it really worth it? Um, because especially when, you know, both parties are fighting, so they're both paying large legal fees and that is taking away from the children because if each one's running up a hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, 
fees. That you know, there's lots of things you could do with that money. And sometimes, of course, it is warranted. I mean, you know, you can, unfortunately, there are situations where you have to fight. But I do see a lot of people fighting just to win, and they may not even win. And that's not necessarily the, the best approach. But, you know, at some people, you know, you'll fight over even, say, $500 in child support. Yeah. And then, but you went and spent $20,000 in lawyer's fees. So if you would have just settled if you, you know, think about it in the, in the big picture. So yeah, it, it definitely gets complicated. So, you know, surprise, surprise, the most common question was about child support. And I'm sure that doesn't surprise you, right? Uh, no. Uh, well, actually, our spousal support is often usually from the, the payor, of course, but that's usually a big contentious issue. But, you know, child support would probably be the next one. Okay. So let's talk about spousal support for a second. So spousal support, can you explain it for, you know, those who may not be familiar? Sure. And before I sort of go into these types of questions, I want to stress that what I am giving here in this interview is not legal advice because I can only give legal advice to people when I've met with them. I know all their circumstances. I have all the background information. So I'm just giving information, talking in generalities, and it's not specific to anyone who's listening's legal situation. So I don't want to run into trouble with the law society. I'm not giving legal advice here. It's just information. Yes. Leanne is not your lawyer. If you want to hire Leanne, I will link her contact information below. Yes. And I will be more than happy to give you legal advice if you hire me, but I just can't do it over a podcast. Um, Absolutely. So yes, with respect to spousal support, with child support, there's actually, you know, firm guidelines that, you know, make it easier. Uh, with spousal support, there there is a guideline, but it's not always, um, it doesn't have the same status as the child support ones, although we're, I think we're moving in the direction of, of making it so, because it's nice to have, you know, that clarity. So it is looked at for sure. Um, and you could even, if you go online and you look at something like my support calculator and whatnot and plug in numbers, you can get some idea of what you know these guidelines say but basically spousal support is based on need and means so you know you have to have a need for it and the other person has to have a means to pay it and so those are the the, the major criteria that are looked at and you know different factors come into you know whether you have a need for instance how long were you married what was your role in the marriage were you at home looking after children while your spouse was the main breadwinner um do you both earn roughly the same? Does, you know, what sort of lifestyle do, are you used to from the marriage? There's there's a bunch of factors that way. Um, but we all have a responsibility on some level to, you know, support ourselves. So that's also, you know, factored in. But if you've been home for, you know, 25 years and the other, your partner was the breadwinner, then certainly you've definitely, you've got a need and you're not going to have a problem, you know, justifying that to a court. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, people need to think about the fact that sometimes, you know, if they're a stay-at-home mom, there's kind of the stigma against them collecting that child support, but they were there to support their partner and building their career and taking care of a lot of the stuff behind the scenes. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that kind of, when, you know, spousal support is so warranted in situations like that, because if you look at a marriage, you really are a team too. And, you know, even though someone is at home, say, you know, looking after the kids and doing the running arounds and all of that stuff that allows the breadwinner to continue to build their business or to grow their career. So, you know, it it does get, it does get complicated. So does spousal support change when someone moves on into a different relationship? So say the stay-at-home mom is getting the spousal support and then they move on and they remarry 
to another man and is a stay-at-home mom over there? Like, is does the new relationship make an impact? It can. And one thing I think you're going to find with a lot of my answers to your questions is it's always gray. You know, they, it depends. Well, you know, is the answer, unfortunately, to to a lot of things. And um, that would be my answer here is it depends. I mean, you know, it, de- it depends on a variety of factors. You know, it is something that is taken into account. It, it would be considered a material change in circumstance, especially if you've remarried. So it's a, you know, you're showing that there's a commitment of a lasting relationship. It's not just you know, you've, you know, a two or three month relationship where, you know, then it's not going to factor in, but a a remarriage and, you know, your need will change because if you're now with someone and they're earning money and helping to support you or helping to pay bills that arise for both of you, your need for spousal support has changed. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important because, you know, I obviously work with a lot of stepmoms and I know a lot of stepmoms begrudge the spousal support payment because it, you know, it can impact the financial status of your current house. But I think it really is important to look at that previous relationship too, and consider all of those things because they were a team at one point. And, you know, sometimes that's where the spousal come from. And you have to really consider that piece. Marriage isn't a light, something to be entered lightly. And people need to understand if you marry someone, there's going to be obligations that arise from that. And, you know, just because the marriage didn't work out, it doesn't mean those obligations end. It's It's a serious matter to marry someone. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of more serious matters, so let's talk about child support. So we are in Ontario. So I think that it's also important for us to specify that because is there differences in the way that child support is calculated in different areas? For sure. And that it's, it's good that you're bringing that up. Yes. Because so, so the information that I'm giving pertains to Ontario. That is the law that I know. There can be differences from province to province and certainly from country to country. I mean, in the U.S., there's lots of differences and, you know, even state to state. So this information is purely for Ontario. Right. And so how is child support calculated in Ontario? Well, there's federal child support guidelines that, you know, as I say, you can Google them. They're easy to find. You basically can plug in information. You look at what a party's income is and how many children there are. And it basically spits out an amount. There's a medium or a low, medium and, and high amount that is given. And that can, you know, sometimes depend on a variety of things, but it spits out the, the, with the child support and with the low, medium and high, that's more when spousal support is mixed in with child support. With child support, it's very clear there's an amount and, you know, unless there's some unusual situation, the, the guidelines generally prevail. Things that do get factored in, though, are the um, residential arrangement of the child. So for example, if the child is with one parent, well, if it's 50-50 or if it's a 60-40 split, 40% is the the sort of the marker, then you may be outside the numbers that are in the guidelines and you, you'll look at different factors because obviously if a child's with you 40 or 50% of the time, it's shared and you're having increased expenses, you know, as, the, as a payor. So it, that needs to be reflected in what you're paying. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions with 50-50 custody is people just assume, oh, there's 50-50, so there is no child support. And that is just not the truth. 
That's correct. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not the truth. And, you know, can you can you explain why, why that is? Why wouldn't it be if you're with your kids half the time, you are just responsible for half? Well, the main factor with child support and, and anything to do with children and family law is the best interest of the child. And you want to have the two homes have some consistency or stability in the lifestyle. So you don't want the children going from, say, you know, one parent has this multi-million dollar lifestyle and the other parent is, you know, living in a shack, struggling to buy food and, you know, but they're sharing, you know, time with the children. So the children are going between a mansion and, you know, a, t- a tiny, tiny, you know, basement apartment or something. Um, so that that's the idea behind it is that, you know, the children need to have some consistency in their, their lifestyle. It's, it's about them. So that's why even if you have them, you know, half the time, they're still going to be, you know, in a lot of cases, not, not in all, but if there's a big disparity in income, there's going to be child support. So, yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. Cause I really do think it helps prevent the whole Disney parent from flying in and, you know, providing with the elaborate trips or, you know, the flat screen TVs in their room or like all of these, you know, material possessions or experiences that maybe the other parent just can't keep up with. And as much as it's not about, that and it's about love and all of those things that it does make it very difficult for parents when they're trying to raise kids with very, very different circumstances, especially teenagers. Right. And yeah, and that's going to happen. I mean, I think, you know, even with child support, you know, inevitably often there is one parent who's, you know, making more money than the other parent or more generous that way with those sorts of things. And as you said, with teenagers, that's where, you know, it can get tricky because teenagers like those things and they can get influenced. Yeah. Well, so at what point do children get to decide where they they want to live? Again, it depends. There's no hard and fast rule. It's not like I can say at the age of you know, 14 or 16. But obviously, the older the children get, the more their wishes um, are relevant, and they can have a, some say. Their, their say is never decisive, because there could be reasons why they're, you know, choosing one parent over the other. It could be because there's no rules, and, you know, they're getting away with all kinds of things. But it depends on, you know, the maturity of the child, because that's not necessarily a reflection of age. And, you know, obviously, children who have special needs or, you know, mental impairments or things like that are going to be in a different situation. But certainly when they, when they start hitting the teenage years, um, you know, courts and and lawyers and, and parents, I think all, you know, do look to the wishes of the children and they do play an important role. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, in our house, we have definitely had times when the kids have said, we would like to stay here. We would like to stay with you. Or we would like to, you know, there's other times where we want to be at mom's and, You know, I know for us, it's really important, even though, you know, it's nice to hear that, that as, as a, as a human, you have those emotions and it's kind of like, you know, well, it it is a compliment and and you do obviously want your kids or your stepchildren to be with you. And, and, but it really is in their best interest to have that relationship with both parents. And, you know, I look back and, you know, obviously there's circumstances where it's not necessary, like there's, you know, abuse or there's different, you know, factors that come into play. But I think when it comes like, oh, on a whole, Growing up, I was able, I remember, I think I was maybe nine to make that decision to go live with my dad. And I look back and I almost say, I've said to my parents a couple of times, I should never have been able to make that decision at at nine years old. You know, it, it truly is 
I think that parents, when they're in this situation, it's important to remember, you know, it is in their best interest to have that relationship with both parents and to, to do that back and forth because, you know, you don't ever get that time back. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it is in children's best interest to have a healthy relationship and quality time with both parents. And I think that, you know, parents need to remember that because as you said, sometimes I know even in my own relationship with my ex, there's, there were times when my children were younger, particularly my daughter, who's my youngest, she didn't want to go to her dad's. But, you know, in those kind of situations, what, what I recommend to people is you, you assess the situations, like why doesn't the child want to go? And I think that parents should encourage them and push them to go. You know, if there's something bigger going on or if it's a consistent pattern, you know, you have to start, you know, looking at it, you know, looking at what the reasons are um, and, you know, do it on a case by case basis. But I can remember situations where we forced my daughter to go and it was the right thing to do. And there were times when we didn't force her to go and that was the right thing to do. Um, And, you know, she has a great relationship with her dad. But I find all too often you see people and they're just more than happy to capitalize on that child not wanting to go to the other parents and use it as a you know thing against the other parent to gain some sort of advantage or feel validated in some way. And, you know, often that's just not the right approach. No. And, you know, at that point, I think a lot of kids aren't in the position where they can make that long-term decision, right? Like they can't, they don't have the foresight to think about the long-term consequences of that. But yeah, so I, that's what I always say to people when they're asking, well, when can they, when can they decide? It's like, well, you, 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 you want them to go to both for as long as possible so that they can continue that relationship. Exactly. So back to, sorry, I'm like hammering questions at you because there's just so many, but back to the child support piece, you know, here, here's a problem that I think a lot of people have is what happens when the child support isn't going towards the kids. You don't, you feel like it's going to subsidize, you know, a lifestyle and, you know, going into the pocket of the receiving, you know, parent and not going towards the kids. How do you suggest that people navigate their way through that? Cause that, that truly is a huge stressor for a lot a lot of people who are paying the child support, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I mean, my response to it would be, how do you know it's not going to the child? How, what proof do you have? What evidence do you have? You know, because often they don't have any. They just, they're angry about paying it and they they say that. And and secondly, it, it, that's a very, it's very hard to prove that it's not. I mean, if you're, if you've been ordered to pay a certain amount of child support or, it, you know, the guidelines are showing this is what you should pay, it's very hard for you to establish that it's not going to the children. Certainly that's going to be something that would involve going to court to argue because the other person is not going to agree to it. And so, you know, then again, it's very circumstance specific. So in certain situations where you have a very high um, income earner, for example, um, and the guidelines use 150,000 as a a sort of a threshold mark. And, you know, in the city of Toronto, 150,000 is, is not what I would call a high income, but that's, I guess, you know, they had to draw the line somewhere. So at, at a certain income, you know, the courts and lawyers and whatnot will, will look at, you know, other factors. Like if someone's earning a million dollars a year and you're to apply, you know, some formula for child support, inevitably it probably is going to end up that, 
there's money going to the other household that there's no way that's all being spent on child support. That becomes a wealth transfer at that point. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in that type of situation, um, you know, you, you are going to look at, you know, the other factors um, and it's not just going to be, you know, purely based on a formula. You're going to look at, it's all about the children. So, you know, you're going to look at their need, the needs, means, conditions the children are in. Like, again, you don't want some drastic change in, in life style, but it's not going to be quite as formulaic, you know, at that level, um, because it is a wealth transfer and, and that's not right either. Okay. I'm going to interrupt this podcast episode for just one minute. Cause I want to make sure that you know about the free guide that I just released. So this one is for anyone who is dealing with a high conflict ex. Look, in a perfect world, our co-parenting relationships would be all hearts and sparkles. Everyone would be able to put their emotions aside, realize that you're on the same team, and actually act in the best interest of the kids. But unfortunately, that's just not always the case. Now, it is important to remember that we all see the world through a different lens and have different perspectives based on our individual experiences. But unfortunately, sometimes when you're co-parenting, you need to deal with the lens and the different perspectives of a high conflict personality, and that can be tough. So in this free download, I share my tips and strategies for co-parenting with this type of personality, from how to keep the drama from impacting your marriage to how to set boundaries and actually stick to them. If you've been struggling in the co-parenting department, you'll want to check this out. So you can download your copy of this guide at www.jamiescrimger.com forward slash high conflict X. So say you have a family or a dad and a stepmom, or, you know, it could be the other side either. I'm not saying one type of family versus the other, but say, you know, the child support is going over and you're, you're paying it every month, but yet you know, the basic needs of the kids aren't being taken care of, or there's payments not going towards extracurriculars, or, you know, the kids don't have the clothes and, you know, that kind of stuff that they should be having. Is that a situation where they have the ability to say, you know, bring that to the court's attention or, you know, go to a lawyer? Is there any type of recourse there? Or do you, is that a tough, tough thing? It is tough. I mean, certainly like, you know, the types of things you mentioned, th- those, you know, would give obviously rise to concerns that the money isn't going towards the children. And, you know, I would, I always say, keep good records, make, you know, take note of things that the more sort of concrete evidence you can build up for something like that and take it to your lawyer. And, you know, they in turn would, you know, have to bring it to, you know, bring a, a motion and, and um, bring it to court. Cause that, again, it's an issue where the other person, the recipient of the child support is never going to agree that, you know, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm not using it for the children. So I'm taking vacations. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to end up in court. And, you know, anytime you end up in court, it's great. There's, you know, that that's why you're in court because it's not definitive. um, It's not black and white. So you'll have to prove it. And that's why like the more, evidence that you can show that it's not just your words saying something um, and you don't want to involve the children in it. So, it, it, you know, you're going to have to look to other things, but definitely there's recourse for that. And, and sadly, you know, that type of thing does happen. So it, it's not like it's not out there. Yeah. And I guess it's with all things when it comes to family court is, is it worth the battle? Is it yeah. really worth the battle? Is it really worth the time and effort? Or is it just something that you have to say it is what it is? 
Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously, depending on how you arrived at your um, separation agreement or whether it's a court order, I mean, if you did so, if you did something through mediation, then, you know, there's always recourse, um, or, and even if you didn't go through mediation, I mean, there's obviously options, you know, that way as well, if you're not agreeing on something to, to get a, a mediator involved. But just usually those really contentious issues, like the one you, you just raised, they end up in court. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to new spouses. So does a stepmom's income come into play when it comes to deciding child support and and how much is going to the previous spouse? Um, Again, it it can. Um, You know, it's basically the the way that it's looked at is whether the uh, step parent is in um, like what we call loco parentis of the child. So if they're acting in a parental role, for example, like not, not replacing the other parent, but if they're, you know, involved in the child's life and, and discipline the child, and maybe are paying for some things just naturally, you know, for the child and they're in a parental type of role. Um, and, you know, especially if it's over a longer period of time, they, you know, could be responsible for child support. You know, it just depends on a variety of these factors. If they're just, you know, if your kids are, you know, 16 and 18 and, you know, the, the, this is like a new spouse to the situation, um, you know, is there kind of getting beyond to the age or almost at the age where child support is maybe not even required, then that's going to be a different issue. Like it's not, you know, they may not be on the line for a university degree or something like that because they married someone who had, you know, 18 year olds. But if the children are younger and you're in that role, then there is the potential for that to happen. So speaking of university, how is that, how is that addressed? Because I know that's a hot topic amongst a lot of people who are, you know, coming up to that age with their kids. And I've heard so many different scenarios and different kind of divisions of responsibility in, in the different agreements. Uh, well, basically, I mean, anything people, anything two parties agree to is possible, right? So a lot of these issues, it, just because the law specifically says one thing, if two people come to an agreement that's different, then, you know, that's just fine if they're agreeing. But essentially with university, the way it's normally done is um, it's based on each party's respective incomes. The same way, like with Section 7 expenses, I don't know if you're familiar with the Section yeah, 7 Yeah, action order expenses. Yeah. So it's the same type of thing. So if, you know, one person is earning a hundred thousand and one person, the other person's earning 50,000, then, you know, the hundred thousand dollar earner is going to be responsible for two thirds of the cost, And the $50,000 earner will be responsible for one third. And, you know, generally the requirement as a parent is that you support your children through one degree or one diploma. Again, you know, you can agree other to something different. Um, you can also agree that the children have to contribute as well a reasonable amount to their own education. I always find I, I, this is one I don't understand when people get people who have the means get upset about it because I, I can understand you arguing about subsidizing a spouse's lifestyle with child support, but with university, that money is directly going to your child, and presumably you want your child to get an education because it's only going to help them in life. So when people fight about that, when sometimes I, I'm not understanding, you know, necessarily what the, the big part of the grievance is about. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think, I do think the other side of it is that there is, 
you know, this assumption that, you know, if you are divorced, then the default is, is that you have to contribute to post-secondary, right? So if you can't come to an agreement, then there's this, the financial obligation to contribute. But if you say we're to have stayed with the, your partner, you guys can say that your kids are responsible for it. So I think that sometimes where people, you know, get into that space where maybe one parent thinks that the kids should be responsible for paying their way through university. And the other parent is like, no, we should be, we should be contributing. And that's, I think where it gets really tricky. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly where, where the issue comes up. And again, I just, as I say, I don't understand from a parental perspective. I mean, I mean, that's my own personal bias, why you wouldn't want to, if you can afford it, why you wouldn't want to help your children out with education. But, you know, some people do have strong feelings differently that they want their children to earn it, or they'd rather they take out, you know, loans and OSAP or, you know, those sorts of things and, and have to be responsible for paying that back. Uh, Cause they did that that way themselves or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I agree that's that is, you know, unfortunately for people in that situation with, with you know, if you're in a divorce situation, the, there is a requirement that you uh, are going to pay. For yeah, part for of sure. So when people get separated, so I, I often will, you know, hear I've heard friends say that actually my husband said it. I've heard it a lot that those early stages of separation, when they say, you know, we're amicable, everything's really good. We, we just kind of figure things out as we go. There's really no agreement in terms of, you know, holidays and pick up and drop off and who's doing what. And I always say, you know, you need to get that figured out ASAP. Like your agreement really should be very, very specific when it comes to who is doing what for the kids, how everything looks. Do you have any insight on that? Because there are a lot of people who do just kind of figure it out as they go. And I personally have seen, you know, that works really, really well until it doesn't anymore. Well, and that's the point is that, um, you know, for a lot of people, they, the last thing they want is to get, they don't want to get lawyers involved They're you know, I don't want to get a lawyer involved. And so, you know, they, they have these situations and, you know, and, it, and it's working, but, you know, the, just like the reason you have um, a contract for something, whether, you know, an employment contract or a contract for a service or whatever, the contract really isn't there for when everything's going great. The contract is there for when there's a problem. And, you know, it's the same thing with a separate agreement, you know, in these issues is that it's all well and good. Well, everyone's happy and there's nobody rocking the boat. But inevitably, in a situation with ex-spouses, there's going to be something that at some point rocks the boat, whether it's a new partner, whether it's a change in financial circumstances, whether it's wanting a, a job offer that's in another city, whether it's a disagreement about, you know, a, a parenting issue with the children, like there's, there's going to be things. And if you don't already have something in writing, spelling clearly out how those things are to be dealt with, and now you're in a conflict, it's, it's just going to be much harder to come to a resolution. Whereas when everyone's happy and you're, you're amicable and you're working together on things, it, it's much easier to come to some sort of agreed upon, you know, parenting plan that's workable. So what do you think should be included in those parenting plans? Um, well, first of all, I mean, the issue of custody, um, which, you know, is not what people necessarily, people think of physical custody as being custody, but it has to do with decision making. So decision making with respect to education, health, religion, extracurriculars. So that, that needs to be clarified. Is it, you know, is it shared? Does one person have full say on certain issues or all issues that needs to be spelled out? Then there needs to be a schedule. So you know, whatever that schedule might be um, and whatever 
you know, the two parents think is in the best interest of their children, you know, whether it's changing every couple of days, whether it's changing every week, whether it's just weekends and, and that kind of thing, again, is also going to depend on the ages of the children, um, you know, very young children who, you know, have been with mom more may have more of a need to be with mom, you know, initially, but then as they grow older, that may change. So, so again, this, this, some sort of schedule so that there's clarity, how to deal with holidays, birthdays, you know, those sorts of things, what to do if the parent who is supposed to have the children, you know, has some commitment that comes up and they can't take the children and they're just going to, you know, have grandma or a babysitter, you know, do you want the, the, should the other spouse have right of first refusal, you know, issues to do with drop-offs, are they, you know, what time are they happening, where are they happening, are they, you know, at your home or is it, if there's an abusive situation, do you want them to be, you know, in public somewhere, issues surrounding the school, um, you know, do, that you, do you both get a copy of, you know, notices, report cards, can you both attend for parent-teacher interviews, school events, you know, that sort of thing. Sometimes there's considerations about you can't move, you know, outside, say in Toronto, like the GTA, like there can be restrictions on moving, um, altering children's appearances, you know, as they get older and, you know, maybe they want to get a body piercing or change their hair color. Do you need to have both parents permission before, you know, something like that happens. And then also the section seven stuff. So extracurricular activities, camps, those sorts of things who, you know, what is, how are they going to be paid? What's the breakdown? And, you know, who do both parties have to agree? Uh, how is that going to look? So there's other issues too, but this is, you know, kind of a basic outline of some of the major ones. I'm just sitting here smiling because I often say, you know, when you're in a blended family or you're co-parenting, even the simplest things aren't simple. Like everything does require, you know, extra thought and consideration and an extra conversation. It really is important to have all of that laid out. And, you know, I'll have stepmoms reach out to me and say, hey, we're reevaluating the agreement. What should we include? And I always say, okay, think back to the last however many years and think about every argument you have ever been in. Come up with a solution or agreement on how you're going to move forward from that if that happens next time, which it probably will, because, you know, we typically deal with the same problems over and over again and come up with a solution and have that written out, like down to the nitty gritty. You can really, you know, as much as it sounds very tedious, even things like you were just saying, you know, who's going to sign the kids up for extracurricular? Who has to agree? Because I know that's actually a huge stressor for parents because extracurriculars are pretty intense these days. So you could have one parent who is signing them up for everything under the moon and the other one who's really valuing family time. And it can really impact your time with the kids. Yeah, and it impacts schedule. So, you know, that's another thing. If you're signing your children up for an extracurricular and it's falling on times when the other parent has the child, I mean, you they're going to have to be agreeable to taking them. And, you know, that can pose, you know, problems too. I, I mean, a lot of, you know, often there's one parent who's maybe a little more pro certain activities than the other. And that can be a source of, uh, you know, again, fighting. And then it's like, you know, do, is this how, how hard do you want to fight over it, you know, becomes an issue too. But I always say as well with a lot of the stuff to do with, uh, you know, parenting plans and scheduling and all of, all of that is just be flexible because you never know when you're going to be the person who needs the other party to be flexible. So if you're being really rigid all the time and, Oh, no, this, it doesn't, the agreement doesn't say this. It doesn't say that 
you know, then that's going to come back to haunt you. So I always say be flexible, but also obviously if someone, if the other party is constantly, you know, not following the agreement and constantly asking for favors or changes, you know, then that's a different issue. And, and, you know, there's an agreement for a reason and it's to be followed, you know, 95% of the time. Yeah. And I think I wrote on my Instagram the other day, just saying, you know, it's important to remember, it's not your time, it's their time. Like kids are people, they're not a timeshare. And it's, I think it's so important to not have them miss out on things that they would have experienced if their parents were together, right? You yeah, know, like birthday parties, like they get invited to a friend's birthday and one parent, you know, wants them to be able to go in the other parent. Oh, it's my time. I'm, you know, it's, that's a perfect example. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, the kids are going to grow up and look back on their childhood as an adult, and they're going to resent those extra things that they had to miss out on all in the name of your time. So I think, you know, being flexible and, you know, even I'll, I'll get a lot of people say, well, why would we allow her to do that? Because, you know, she never gives us the same or she never would do that for us. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's not a tit for tat. Like it's don't, don't do the tit for tat. Do always what's best for the kids because they're the only ones who are, you know, missing out here. Like they're, exactly. they're collateral damage to all of this. So it's about them, you it know, is. It, it's, it is. It, that's what people have to always remember. It is about the kids. It's not about, you know, winning. It's not about your, your ex could be a total, you know, a-hole like, you know, but remember it's about your kids. It's not about them being a jerk and taking advantage of you and all of that. It's just, is this good for my kids if I agree to this or not? Mm -hmm. And there's really no winner or loser at the end of the day. When you're engaging in that type of behavior, it's, it's just a whole lot of wasted energy. And, you know, the kids are the ones who are missing out. Yeah. And a lot of it comes down to common sense. Like what I find sometimes is challenging as a lawyer is you get clients running to you with like every little decision on what is really sometimes just common sense parenting stuff. And there isn't a right or wrong answer. It's just, can you two adults who are parents work something out here without having to run to the lawyers and get them to you know, work something out for you. And, you know, again, if there's abuse or there's situations like that, then sometimes you need to have that outside party doing it. But sometimes it's just a lot of common sense stuff that two mature adults, you know, can work out, you know, for the best interest of their children. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, okay, grow up, just, just grow up and, and, (laughs) you know, be an adult. So here's, here's my last question for you. Should a stepmom attend court with their man? Uh, that's a good question. And my general answer is going to be, it depends. Um, I would say, you know, probably in a lot of situations, not, you know, if it's going to add, you know, fuel to a fire, uh, you know, for the other spouse to see, you know, the stepmom there, and it's just going to create more conflict and more hostility Then really what's the point of that. If it's, you know, for a different reason that there's something going on in court that it's important that you show that you are united as a couple and that you, you know, have a loving home and, you know, that sort of thing, then maybe it, it makes sense to go. It's really situation specific, but don't go just to piss off the other, uh, the other spouse. Yeah. And it's not about, you know, marking your territory and like, you know, I'm here and, and I I'm part of the kids' lives and all of that. Like, I think sometimes stepmoms and moms can get into, you know, this pissing match for lack of better words, where they're just trying to, you know, show each other up or mark their territory. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
don't do something intentionally that you know is going to bother another person, especially when you're in court with them, right? Like you were, yeah. you want to come to an agreement here, not make matters worse. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, if that's the thing, it, it really matters what is the purpose of it. And, you know, if you're required, you know, obviously, if you're required to be there, you're going to be there if there's some issue where where that's relevant. But, you know, often that isn't the case. And people just want to go because they want to, you know, as you say, mark their territory or just push the buttons of the other person. Yeah. And, you know, that, that doesn't get anyone anywhere. Just just a higher lawyer's bill, actually. No, exactly. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. There's, you know what, I'm sure I'll, I'll have to have you on again because more questions will come in once this podcast becomes live, but you're, you're a wealth of information. And I, I just, I love what you do. I think it is so important. And, you know, when I first became a stepmom, I quickly realized, you know, there's not a lot of support out there for people navigating this time in their lives and in this kind of unexpected event. Because no one, I often say, you know, Getting divorced is not anyone's five-year plan. Like no one expects that this is how their life is going to turn out. And, and it's a really tricky thing to navigate. So, you know, it's great to have, you know, you out there as a resource. And so where can everyone find you? If someone wants to kind of look you up and rack your brain, have you support them through? Uh, well, you can find me at my website, which is www.leannetownsend.ca. I'm also active on social media. So Instagram, uh, my handle there is Leanne Townsend Life. I am on Facebook, um, again, with my name, um, and lawyer and divorce coach. And I'm also on Twitter, again, with my name. So I'm, I'm all over the place. But my website has links to all of my social media. So that's probably the best place to start. Perfect. And I will link that for everyone uh, in the show notes so everyone can go and find you and see all that you have to offer. So thank you so much, Leanne. Like this was great. And I, uh, I'm definitely be prepared. I'm going to be asking you to come back. Well, I'd like that. You asked great questions. So, um, I, I, I hope that, you know, your listeners find this all very helpful. Yeah, I'm sure they were. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, guys, if you like this podcast, please do me a little favor. Take a second and subscribe on iTunes and then screenshot this podcast, give it a share in social media and tell your friends what you think. And hey, don't forget to tag me so that I can thank you for helping me spread the word. Thanks so much. And I will talk to you next week.